Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. I just got in last night from Lawrence in the Five Towns. Um, first time I've ever been there, you know what I mean? Uh, it's, a, it's been at Shabbos there at all, certainly as a scholar in residence. Uh, at the uh, base manager Lawrence, I want to thank everybody for hosting us very nicely. Myself and my comrade in arms, Ed Hoffman. I want to specifically thank my immediate host, the uh, Safir family, uh, Dovey and his wife, and uh, the um, Gary Silver and his wife, and everybody that was in, in charge. And um, nice to see a lot of old faces. You know, it enables me to put a face together with an email, so to speak. Uh, I also want to thank... Uh, Zebrain's nephew, that's uh, Kiva Berg, because at the last minute he put together a, uh, a talk, got invitation to give a talk at one of the Minyanim on Shabbos morning at the um, Young Israel of, uh, I guess, Lawrence and Cedarhurst, <coughs> the Rabbi Trump show, and I got to meet Rabbi Trump a little bit last night when I, when I came to get my stuff. So anyway, we had a very uh, interesting weekend. I hope everybody else had an interesting weekend. <coughs> and... Um, a lot of people came from different places, and so I really am grateful to all the people. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to forget, there was a gentleman who was nice enough to walk me. I don't know my way around from one show to the other. That was Mr. Schwartz, T.B. Schwartz, and he was very kind, and I appreciate um, his hospitality. He even gave me some of the swarm his son wrote. He said his son wrote 50 or 60 or 70 swarm. Whoa. Um, and anyway, so it was just an interesting weekend, especially from Baltimore to Lawrence and the Five Times a different Zach. Just a different Zach. Okay, um, so I came home late last night, so I uh, was talking, I was communicating with uh, with uh, Gnazim, told you to having the uh, the auction, the auction book coming up, and Sal Stefanski, and he asked me, uh, you know, do I see anything in the catalog I'd like to talk about for a bio today, and I said, I'll give it some thought, he certainly has the right you know, <laughs> to suggest that he's the best friend of this uh, podcast. In general, um, I'm always happy to get compliments from people. The rest of what we really need are sponsors, uh, like uh, like Stavinsky family. And anyway, cut right down to the chase. As I slept on and I woke up in the morning, for some reason, he mentioned a number of names. I focus on the Asharmi Candy, even though it's somebody I would never think of talking about. And um, as I went through my different tasks this morning, the idea uh, gelled in my head, so here we go. I'm talking about one of the interesting, unusual characters in Jewish history, who was a Jewish intellectual, you might say, a rabbi, but also a scientist and stuff like that, who lived in the early 1600s, in other words, in the early 17th century. An extremely unusual person, and someone who occupies in Jewish memory. Now, I repeat, I'm talking about memory as opposed to history. The Olam has certain images of people, whether they're accurate or not. That's what you call memory. Uh, the Asharma Kandia occupies, as I understand, a very interesting um, place in that constellation of um, imagined ideas. So who are we talking about? <clears throat> uh, this is Yossi Shlomo del Medigo. So you can tell maybe by the name. It's Italian, but it's not exactly Italian. He's from Crete. Uh, so here's somebody lived 
from 1590 or 91, something like that, to 1650 or 1655. So, you know, basically the first day of the 1600s. Now, it's not much what I talked last week before about the um, the Shlaw. But the Shlaw lived in a, di- a different area and had a much more settled and, as I said before, gilded existence. Our hero today just had a very different type of life, even though they both are great Tamir Chacham. I wouldn't necessarily compare Yasha Bakandi with the Shlaw, who was literally one of the Gedoli Ador. But nevertheless, he's very distinct and unusual. <coughs> and he definitely was a forest gump, as you shall see in a minute. <coughs> Our hero was therefore born on the island of Crete. Um, in order to understand what I'm talking about, I would advise you, if you have the opportunity, if you're listening to this, just Google the map of the Empire of Venice, or the Republic, the Statomare, the Republic of Venice, that once upon a time existed, because he's a Venetian Jew, in a certain peculiar way. Now, if you ask me what I mean, if you don't know the geography at all, I can't do much with you. But if you take the trouble, just look at the map of uh, Southern Europe, you'll see that, um, especially in the pre-modern era, uh, the city of Venice had conquered a certain empire. Not a giant empire, but an empire. Much, much bigger than the city. And I've spoken about it many times, and so forth. And we've come across X number of Gedolim that were Venetians. They weren't just some Italians. Venice is a unique blend. And um, one of the things Venice did was it had Carca outside of Italy. Uh, they, I don't want to get into too many details, but the Venetians owned um, a whole bunch of fortresses along what we would call today the Yugoslavian coast or the Adriatic coast. I've timed myself now at Serbia and whatever. And for a while they owned southern Greece and also the islands of Crete and Cyprus. Isn't that interesting? And uh, they fought a lot of Mohammeds with the per- Turkish Empire, tried to take away from them. In the long, long run, the Turks did succeed. Okay? But meanwhile, if you look at the island of Crete, which is just south of Italy, the big I'm sorry, south of Greece, the big island, the largest of the Greek islands, below Greece, um, that's a place that's had Jews forever, and, um, you know, from Jews, and uh, they were ruled by Venice for 400 years, which is a long time, Uh, and Crete is in the Mediterranean, therefore, they're exposed to all kinds of, uh, besides the wars in Juglia, all kind of Jewish cultural influences, and Christian cultural influences, because you get it from the west and from the east, from the north and the south, because it's in there. So they're exposed to the Arabic culture, the Byzantine culture, the Italian culture, of course, in Venice, the Greek stuff. I don't know, a whole bunch of business. And if you're Jewish, you get the Jewish version of that. You get your Ashkenaz stuff, you get your Italiani stuff, you get Sephardi stuff, you get your non-Sephardi Middle Eastern stuff. It's just very interesting. So it was a min sort of, but not exactly, because since it was ruled by Venice, they always had a very heavy Venetian influence. And uh, I don't want to get off too long there, the island of Crete was always three groups, A, B, and C. It's the Greeks, the Jews, and the Italians who run the place, the Venetians. And, you know, it's one of those triangles where are the Italians going to treat the Jews better than the Greeks, the Greeks better than the Jews. If it's up to the Greeks, they kill all the Jews. It was a funny existence. And Jews lived in these ghettos over there. That's what they did for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they had their elites. And they had their uh, uh, wealthy elites, so to speak, of these small Jewish communities. And they had their um, intellectual elites. And in Candia, in Crete, used to call it Candia. In Crete, the intellectual elites 
Again, we're two types, A and B. One is just Gamar, 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 as I always say. And the other one would be not just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. I'll use the word masculine because our hero today was definitely and absolutely a masculine, but without the non-from connotations. This is 150 years before Moses Mendelssohn was even around. The Haskalah means something completely different, and that's the reason I'm talking about this today. <laughs> right? Because uh, one of his famous books is uh, is an item in the in the catalog, item 101. And it's very, uh, and, and it, I'll, I'll get to it in a second. So our hero was born in Crete, um, and his father uh, was a Rav. And I'm sure, you know, also did business because Crete is, you know, very ideally suited to do business back and forth from, you know, import-export all across the place. You're close to Greece, you're close to Turkey, you're close to Italy, you're close to North Africa, to Egypt, and so forth. San economy, there's piracy and stuff like that. But that's how life was lived. And in addition to that, his father was a Moskil. When I say Moskil, I mean they knew Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. They did. And they were Rabbanim. And they had Dore Doris, actually, of Rabbanim. But many of them, in addition to Rabbanis, in addition to learning Shas and Poskim, which he certainly did, they also uh, studied philosophy, science, math, and all that junk. Now, um, it's very interesting. He... He went to college when he was 15. That's what he used to do once upon a time. Basically, a lot of people agree with him about to say. For many kids, depending on the school and depending who they are, they could skip 12th grade. Do you agree with that? You get what I'm saying? You know, depending on the situation, of course. But you could totally hear the guy could skip 12th grade. He could go straight to a yeshiva. He could go straight to college. If he's a bright kid. So, uh, skip 11, 12, if you learned it up beforehand. So our hero, Yosef Shlomo Del Medigo, uh, Del Medigo means uh, from a medico, from a doctor, MD. So he came from a family where they combined uh, learning Torah with uh, with um, what called with being doctors. So it was like teenager or something like that, you know. Um, and uh, nothing wrong. So and he will be really, I would say, in certain respects, among the foremost examples of Torah motto. And I don't mean that as a cliche. Literally, Torah Umada, as you'll see in a minute. A very interesting guy, unusual. Uh, but he's in the art scroll, <laughs> early Achorna book. See, that's the point. Now, um, and, it, and in the Chidah brings him down, in the Shema Gedolim. So, here's a guy that learns up to the age of 15. He learns with his father, Gamorashitosis and that sort of thing. You know, learning. But the father also hires tutors to teach him the three important languages of science. And that is Greek and Latin and Arabic. This is the very tail end of the Middle Ages. All the books are written in Greek or in Arabic or in Latin. Now, they're in the process of being translated, but watch this. If our hero learned up Arabic, he don't need no translation of Marnavukim. He can read it original. Get it? You hear what I just said? He don't need anybody to explain the Chobos all of us and all that business. He can read it in the original. And then you can tell how good or how bad, usually how bad a job the translator did. You and I are prisoners to some degree of the translators, and not him. Okay, so here's a guy who comes with a very good foundation for Chachmas um, Chetzonius, for secular education. At the age of 15, he goes to Venice. Remember, he's a Venetian citizen because Crete is part of the Empire of Venice. If I'm not mistaken, I think Othello in Shakespeare's play, wasn't he fighting in Crete? Was it Cyprus? On behalf of Venice against the Turks, 
You know, that was the Matthias at that time. So he goes to Venice, the city. No, he doesn't. He goes to Padua, which is not far away, because Padua has the university that I've spoken about many times, and he's a spitz example of the type of rabbi who's a big Tamachach and also has a college education to be an MD. <laughs> so our hero is a 15-year-old boy who stops off in Venice. And by the way, he meets Leona Moda. And all, I tell you, he is a forest gum. All the famous people you've heard about, controversial and not controversial in Venice, Simone Luzzato, all these, uh, what shall I say, um, uh, enlightened rabbis, who were Bucky Bishas, but, you know, didn't hold a Kabbalah, that's who they were. Um, but then he goes to Padua, not to learn the yeshiva there, although I'm, it's clear to me that he must have learned there part-time. But he came there like many did from all over the place to go to college. Because, I mean, there's no reason you... I've said this often, very often. The Catholic Church in the 15th century, in 1431, the Council of Basel, um, they prohibited Jewish students from studying at Christian universities. But Padua said, we're going to do it anyway. If the Jews, you know, pay like a penalty, get it? So if I'm a Jewish kid and I want to go to college and get an MD, so uh, my tuition will be double, triple from the Christians. I said, once, if they pay $100 a year, I have to pay 300 You know, something along those lines. If they pay 10000 I have to pay 30000 you know. And also, this is very medieval, what I'm about to say. They had these screwball clauses. If you want to come here, you have to pay for the senior trip. <laughs> get it? You know, once they all graduate, they'll have a party. And this now that you pay for the expenses or some percentage of it. And these are to rub the Jews' nose in the dirt. But you know what it's like? It's the price of doing business. Like a Jewish guy says today, listen, I'm going to run up bills in medical school. And then I hope I'll pay it off once I get a practice. So, you know, that's what he did. <laughs> okay? Now, Padua is just very interesting at the time. He's talking, I would say, golden age of Padua. There's yeshiva there, one block away from the college, from the university. I was there. Uh, there's a thriving community. Obviously, the Italian Jews are into, into their machlaikism, you know, that they love. And it's just a pulsating business. He, the University of Padua was, in his time, and if he was born in 1590, so he goes there in 1605, I guess. So, in his time, it was the number one uh, cutting-edge science university. Um, this is an important point, in my personal opinion, for our hero, because he is coming in a time when the old science was being dissed and replaced by a new model of science. It happened very slowly, but it happened. So uh, take, for example, medicine. They used to believe in the Aristotelian system with the four humors, and, you know, if you're sick, it means you have too much bile and too much phlegm and this kind of stuff. It was all baloney. It's all bull. And, you know, <laughs> the doctors probably killed people. Only now, in the late 1500s, middle, late 1500s and the 1600s, that is when, starting in place like Padua, they say, let's do anatomy. Let's do experiments. Let's take cadavers. You know, in other words, hands-on medicine. The high knew the real thing. And, um, you know, guess who was just a student just before him? Well, William Harvey, you know, discovered circulation of blood. And Vasilius, the guy who writes the anatomy books. So in Padua. So he was in a place that was Lafie, the 17th century, the most advanced medicine, which means what do you do with all the Aristotelian stuff that so many people held of, including the Rambam? You say, well, it's a bunch of bull, you know. <clears throat> so, uh, and same thing with astronomy, because in other words, Copernicus is now knocking out the old Ptolemy system. And same thing in mathematics, and same thing in physics. You get what I'm saying? So I don't think you and I can appreciate this 
the paradigm shifted. Uh, and unlike other rabbis, because he was a Talmud <coughs> who unaware about this, they don't know and they don't care. You know, what is the Marsha who lived at that time? What does he give a darn about, you know, the replacement of the medicine and that kind of thing? You see what I'm saying? Or the new physics. It doesn't matter to him. Uh, I mean, he might know about it, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter to him. Our hero is taking courses in the university. He's 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Those are exciting years. He was a Talmud of Galileo. You understand? Later when he wrote a book, he quotes Galileo and him had a lot of conversation. Later come Galileo. And you know, Galileo was so advanced in his theories and knocking the old stuff that the Catholic Church put him in house arrest for the rest of his life. <laughs> so notice he hung around what we would call today dangerous intellectuals, the danger being that they had the chutzpah to challenge the old style of science and, and, and uh, philosophy. It's just a way of understanding reality. Uh, and we're seeing here at the beginning of the decline of what they call the scholasticism. Get it? in which you just prove something by quoting somebody a little before you, uh, which we do in the Jewish world. But that's the area of religion. They did in the area of science. And uh, uh, it's just very interesting because, let's put it this way, you have to split your personality between the Torah side and the Mata side. The Torah side in a Hanami, you go by what dead people wrote. In the Mata side, you're, you're, you're abandoning that model and switching to a different model, which is experimental and empirical. And, you know, you, you, you try new, uh, you know, the new science, which says nothing is true. This is only where we're holding at this moment, but tomorrow we might change. I can't, it, it, it's hard for me to get across to you because you and I live in a time we've been born into and we've been living in a time when changes in science are frenzied and all the time, every day, you know. So we just expect new things to happen and new, new models to happen uh, and new ways of thinking. Sometimes we like them, sometimes we don't like them. It extends in the area of culture as well, which is problematic. But nevertheless, this is normal, so to speak. Back then, it wasn't normal. It was new and, 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 and uh, breathtaking. And what does this mean for somebody? Uh, it's very interesting. If you lived before this, like in the time of the Rambam and all that, there were two truths, as there are for many people today. This is a Torah and then there's science. Some people say, yes, I have problems reconciling what I know from Torah and what I know from science. I get that. I hear it all the time. I mean, I understand what they're saying, okay? Because science is true, but the Torah is true. Archaeology is true, but the Torah is true. You, know, you see what I'm saying? But in, what if I told you the science is not true? I don't mean that I'm making fun of it. The science is not true. It's just, uh, you know, what they have up till now, but tomorrow they can change or something like that. So you have less of a certainty in the science. That can do a lot of things to you, Okay. Um, some people doubled down and just became super from. Some people just totally jumped into the new science and dropped religion. And and many people go for Kabbalah. You hear what I'm saying? Many people go for Kabbalah, which is one of the things our hero is going to do, although he's not going to just become a total Kabbalist. So I would say he's just very intellectually very curious. Imagine if you were 16 years old and your high school teacher was not some Schmendrick, but you had Galileo. <laughs> I mean... Get this in mind. You know, he graduates and he's an MD, I believe, or something like that. At the age of 18, he goes back home uh, and he's there for a number of years. He got married, he had a daughter, and then he left home and never came back. I don't understand why. Nobody knows why. My only possible guess, but it's just a total guess, is something must have happened to him and his wife. And I just don't know. I mean, I'm gonna make some I'm gonna make a scenario up, even though I'm just totally making this up. 
but you know, try to dialectically answer the question. Suppose his wife went insane or or something like that. You know, it's just a guess. But there's no, he left home and never came back. So he had a baby daughter, and he left her with his with, with the girl's grandparents, and others with his parents, and he hit the road. And he spent the rest of his life wandering, and not wandering stomachly, idiot wise. The opposite, wandering around very intellectual wise. So here we have a most unusual biography, which is not like the Marshall, you know, <laughs> not like the Alshik or anybody like from that time. It's a unique. It's a Jew from Crete, who now is going wandering, and it seems that he's looking. Maybe I mean again, I'm just guessing. Maybe try to miyash of the issues I just said before, which is how do I locate myself? What am I supposed to believe in if the old books of philosophy and things like this are now being discredited, but the new ones I don't know how reliable they are, and this is what I learned in the Torah side, and this is what I learned in the other side. And so he wandered, and it's you know, I'm sure if you look online there must be a map with the uh, with arrows. First he went to Egypt. There's old famous Geshechta, and in Egypt you know, he he finds a lot of all the Arab, Arab um, what do you go philosophy books, which is very interesting to him. They say back at home when he was a kid, I mean when he was got married and all, he had like a library of thousands of volumes. I don't know how somebody could afford a library of thousands of volumes back in the early 17th century, but that means he came from money, right? Came from money. Even today, if somebody has seven thousand volumes, you know. Um, but anyway, um, see. He, he, he looks, he's like a Mavakash Emes. That, that's what it comes across. And uh, he went to Egypt. He had a, a debate, they say, with an Arab uh, sheikh or something like that, you know, with religious issues. He busted the sheikh, but then he had to go to the house and give him a big present and they kiss up to him and say, you won. Because you know how it goes. If if the Arabs think you beat them, they'll kill you. You understand? Um, and then he, and that, uh, let's put it this way. Winning a debate with a Muslim is, is uh, like the second... <laughs> <laughs> the second uh, worst thing that could happen, right? And uh, so he ran away to Turkey. Uh, in Turkey, he met him a couple. Uh, this is right after the Rizal died. I mean, our hero was born in 1590, which is less than 20 years after Elie died. There were still people who knew him. Yaakov and the Chemis, they call him. And this guy said, no, there's a whole, you know, I hear, I'm sure, I'm sure that he said, I have kashas, you know, between Torah and Mana and all that kind of stuff. And the guys know we have Kabul over here. It's the real McCoy. Uh, I knew the Rizal, or the, my Rebbe knew the Rizal, or something like that. And uh, this is how it goes. And I would remind you that a lot of the areas of Kabul, this is going to sound funny, are kind of scientific, especially in terms of the 17th century. And it's just another way of understanding reality. And he really got into it. And so we'll call this the postgraduate education. Here's a guy who had a certain type of education at the, not elementary, but the high school level, and then another type of education, an excellent education, at the university level, and now it's a post-university education. He's meaning uh, Talmudim of the uh, Ari. Now, mind you, at the time I'm talking about, the Rizal stuff wasn't printed, and it was just getting out in dribs and drabs, and uh, our hero is like trying to figure out, just like everybody else in the world is. What exactly is going on? Rechaim Vital is still alive. He died in 1620. And Rechaim Vital is not telling anybody, you know, what that we really said. Um, not, except a tiny few. And uh, this guy's like fascinated with it. Uh, he gets, a, he gets a, a contract to get a very cushy MD position as a uh, personal physician 
uh, for like one of the richest guy in the kingdom of Poland. And he takes it. One second. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so he took this job because he got a VIP offer. Um, one of the top guys in the kingdom of Poland, um, Radzivill, who was actually the, um, I guess in English you'd say the governor general of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which is a huge position in the old kingdom of Poland without going into details. So he took him as a personal physician, which is, in, you know, he went a Jewish doctor. And, uh, and I say a Jewish doctor with, an, with a, you know, with an MD uh, from the best university. And he was there for a number of years in Poland, which at that time was the golden age of Poland. But you see, it's all a matter of point of view. When I say the golden age of Poland, I'm thinking like yeshivish style. If you want people to talk in learning and Tosis and Marshall and all that, fine. But if, and, you know, he was interested in that. But if you're also interested in other stuff, there's nobody to talk to. And uh, here we have our hero, start out in Candia, in Crete, and now he's in Vilna. Vilna was the capital of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which was part of the Kingdom of Poland. Technically speaking, the combined Kingdom of Poland slash Lithuania. And uh, here's a guy in Vilna. I mean, at the time he was there, I don't know, I think it was like the Shach. You know, Poland, uh, Vilna was Vilna. Um, and you know something? He could talk to them in learning. I don't know if he could talk Yiddish, and I'm not sure he could talk Yeshivish. You get what I'm saying? Maybe he could, because he was in Padua for a while, and he understood Pilpul and all that. But I think the whole style of the Ashkenazi Polish business, which was, which the Maral complains about, and the Kliyokar at that time complains about, which is from the age of uh, 10, you're already learning Tosis, you know, and trying to be Michalik and do Chalukim and Pilpulim and all the rest of it. So if that was a turnoff to the Maral of Prague and the Kliyokar and others, imagine this guy coming here where he said, where's the educational system? I learned with my father first the whole Mishnayis, and then we did the Gemara, and first we did the Gemara and Rashi, and then afterwards we went over the Gemara Rashi and Tosas, and after that, you know, we learned the Rambam, you know, that way. And because he was Italian too, you know. And uh, I'll say it again, he was very learned, he was a big time with Chacham, but, you know, the, the whole yeshiva style, I guess, in Poland, wasn't a turn on to him. He gave classes, for example, in Chumash Rashi to Balbatim and Chumash uh, Ben Ezra. See, like the Ben Ezra. Uh, he, a guy like this is going to have a rationalistic bent, even though at the same time, he's living in a time when rationalism itself, as a be-all, end-all, is becoming discredited because of the decline of the old model of science and, and philosophy and ways of thinking. Most of the rationalism that was in the old books like the Roshonim, was based on the philosophical models, which now, in his lifetime, are being discredited. I repeat, this guy was a student of Galileo. Uh, and he was a bucky in uh, mathematics, in astronomy. I'm serious about that. I'm not exaggerating. In physics, um, in optics, in botany, and all, all that stuff. Uh, so he's a, a strange bird in Poland. Now, he's not a rabbi there. Notice his job is just to be the guy's doctor. So, okay, but he's a from Jew, you see. Uh, so it was like a strange business. And you know, if I want to talk in learning, there's a million yeshivas and, and base medrashas you can walk to in Vilna. If I want to talk science or dikduk, get it? Or I, I want to ask questions in the parsha of the week, which aren't yeshivish, they're not unfrum, but they're not yeshivish. Who am I going to talk to? The answer is guess who lives right next door? To, as, a, as a suburb of Vilna, the Karaites, the Karayim, 
they're into Tanakh, uh, Chumash anyway, and Dikduk and all that kind of business. And they're also interested in science. That's who they were. There's no such thing as a as a Karite ultra-Orthodox. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Karite yeshivish. Uh, so it's always been part of their culture to cultivate Mahada along with Torah as they understand it. And so he hangs around a lot with the Karites. The local Jews don't like that. You know, you're supposed to have nothing to do with them. He, of course, is like this. Listen, I'm not dealing with, I'm not becoming a Karite, but you know, what we have in common, we have in common. And even though he had a good position after a while, he leaves Poland. So this is a peripatetic guy. He started in Kandy, went to Padua, ended up in Egypt, then went to Istanbul. Then he went, he actually went to Poland. On the way, by the way, when he went through Poland, he stopped for a while in Romania and learned them Kabul with another big Makabal and all that sort of thing. And so this is a guy head stuff head stuff the knowledge. He knows Shas. He did. He knew Shas. Um, which is just interesting. And um but he knows, as I said before, the medieval classics of secular and Jewish philosophy. Uh, I mean, he knows Averroes and all that business. Uh, and Plato and Aristotle and, you know, and the, what do you call it, uh, Hippocrates and Galen and the whole the whole business. All right? Um, so that itself is impressive. And now he knows Kabbalah. And he said, how do you know Kabbalah? I learned with him a couple. That's how you're supposed to do it, my friends, right? You know, everybody said, I guess, I still learn Kabbalah from Sephorum. Well, guess what? There were no Sephorum in the, in the Luriana Kabbalah. He says, I learned from guys that learned from the Rizal. Okay, okay. Uh, but I guess the absence of any Mada whatsoever uh, leads him to move west to Germany, you know, from Poland into Germany. These are still the good years for the Jews, although Germany was going through the uh, 30 years of war. But he went to Hamburg. And uh, in Hamburg, there was what you call the Murano communities just forming. We're now in the early part of the 1600s, in which you have the Spanish Portuguese diaspora beginning. Uh, communities of people who ran away from Portugal and Spain were now coming in all the time and building new Jewish communities, small but uh, but not poor, in uh, in certain places, especially Amsterdam and Hamburg. These are the two epicenters. So I want you to understand, everybody in the Cahillo was born a guy, meaning they were born officially Catholic back in Portugal or Spain. And they were hiding their Jewishness, and now they escaped ahead of the Inquisition, now they end up in, like I say, Amsterdam or in or in Hamburg, and they got to start all over again. And of course, they're going into business. That's what they're going to do, you know, be merchants. But they have to discover Judaism, and he became the rov there of the Spanish Portuguese community, which which is a good fit, you think, because you want, you know, these are educated guys. The people in the in the show were all people. All many were were uh, Portuguese Jews or back in Spain. They went to college. Many of them were highly accomplished. They knew the secular stuff. They're now trying to rediscover their Judaism, but the the, the European stuff they knew very well. And here they have a rov, who uh, is is highly educated in Limud Echol, in addition to be fully competent in Limud Kodesh. So you'd think he'd stay there for a long time. I don't know why he didn't, but um, he was there for a number of years, and then he went to Amsterdam. Maybe I guess Amsterdam is even a promotion. So look what a crazy. Um, the career I'm talking about, you know, you're in the university and then you're in Egypt debating and then you're uh, uh, the uh, physician for a, for a prince in Poland and now you're a, a role for the Sephardic community, the Western Sephardic community in uh, Hamburg and then in Amsterdam. Uh, and little by little, you know, let's put it this way. He's, he's, he's working out in his mind, you know, 
difference between Kabbalah and philosophy and truth. I think he was a truth seeker, I think, you know, I believe. And um, what do you call it? people? And, and, you know, he had a big reputation. People knew that he's like this. And I think people came to him with a Muna question. So that's a, you know, Hashkafa question. That might be a better way of putting it. Now, um, yeah, sorry, I got interrupted again. <laughs> it's around this time when he's in a, a rabbi. Um, I don't know, the Spanish-Portuguese community wasn't totally organized yet. And, you know, with them, anyway, the Balabat, the Richie Riches run the show totally. The rabbis are like employees. But, you know, he had a big reputation, as I said before, for secular knowledge as well as rabbinical knowledge. And therefore, he played some kind of rabbinical role in Amsterdam. And the point is, he's he's there when Menashe in Israel is there. Who we spoke about before, Menashe in Israel had a printing press. And they're friends. You know, they're somewhat similar. But Menashe in Israel didn't go to college. This guy went to college. He had a real degree. He had a real MD. They both read a lot. They're both from... Menashe in Israel is a BT by definition, because he's Portuguese Jew. Our hero was FFB, from a very Yichistic family. But they nevertheless had a good uh, relationship, and he persuaded him to p- write a book on science. It was one of the carrots wrote him questions at Shiloh's in science. I'm serious. In other words, I'm talking about math, um, algebra, trigonometry, astronomy, all kinds of things, um, because the carrots pursued these uh, sorts of interests. And he published it, it's called Safer Alien, yeah, because it's supposed to be like this, you know, the Jews were thirsty, they came, how's it go? So that's the principal organization. The whole book is not survived. They didn't print all of it, but they print some of it. And it's in Hebrew, in the 1600s, and it's a science book, which brings the science, at least to the things he talked about up to date. Because all the other Hebrew books are always hundreds of years out of date, because they're all based on the medieval model. You, you get what I'm saying? So, uh... If somebody, for example, like the Vilna Gone 100 years later, if he had a medieval book on science, not going to be too much good. If he had, say, for Alien or something like that, which is more modern, it'd bring the, the math and the science up to date, unless he figured it out himself. So um, this became, obviously, his, his calling card. I mean, most people have heard of the Yashar Mekandi from the Safer Alien. I rephrase that. The non-from have heard of the Yashar Mekandi, our guy, Yosef Shlomo Bedel Medigo, from the Safer Alien, which is a classic book of the new science uh, uh, circa 1620 of uh, in Hebrew. You understand? But again, he ain't typical. This is uh, just unusual, especially the fact that he wrote it to a character really made the film go like, what's that? Uh, after that, he, he gets more and more into Kabbalah, uh, which is really interesting, and brings us up to what I wanted to mention today uh, because uh, I saw in the catalog of the Gnazim they have one of the items they're selling, the, uh, a safer, which is a famous safer of yesterday. You never see it, but I ran into it, you know, me, in a bookstore in Yerushalayim a couple of years ago, uh, 10 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, and it was so weird, I bought it. And it's a new printing uh, of, of this famous and controversial book. Um, and, in, and in the catalog, what they're auctioning off is the original published in 1630. So I'm, I'm, I'm and I'm not in that league, you know. Uh, this I think the opening bit is eight grand. The uh, <laughs> forget that. But uh, but I thought uh, what I like better, and I'll explain what I mean. I'm talking about a safer, and these are not unknown at all, but they're only known among the cognoscenti. Uh, and it's very fascinating. Um, and I hope I have time to 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 do this right, or maybe I'll continue later. One's called Master Flachachma, and the other one's called Novelis. 
Chachmas, okay? Um, and I, like I say, I was in Shalayim. In fact, I picked this up in Tufchin Ayin Gimel. I wrote the date down. So, 2013. <laughs> this is funny. Erev Habachi wrote. So, I guess I was in Israel just before they had the elections of 2013. And, you know, in Israel, it's so funny. You don't know random, like, who the heck is it that publishes these kinds of crazy, out-of-the-way Torah Matas of yesteryear, 17th century books. You know what I'm saying? It's like when I saw Chazek Kresu's Nakuda, I was like, who does that? It's just fascinating me. And that's why I'm so angry that Israel's closing the borders all the time. They won't let anybody go there. I have reason to go anyway. I have a son over there. But besides that, um, besides that, uh, you know, you, this farm you can't get um, in America. They just never make it over here. Uh, nor would there be a market here. And Somebody did a reprinting with very nice letters, beautiful job, um, you know, Osius Mubos, and nice little stuff there, nice, very, very user-friendly, the way I like it. Everything, A, B, N, all but Nakudos, you know? And uh, it's the Master of the Chachma, Novus Chachma, from Yashar Mikandia, plus a tiny bit more. Uh, this is a classic of yesteryear. Uh, he published... The master of the Chachma, around 16, late 20s. So that means he, the guy, I mean, he didn't live such a long life, you know. So uh, he was in his 60s when he died. So here he would be 40 years old, approximately, right? After, after having wandered like crazy up and down. But remember, his wandering is in Stamazai. He runs into this guy, he runs into that guy. He's meeting some of the most interesting intellectuals, thinkers, mystics. Rabbonim of the 70s. That's why he says a forest gump. So, anyhow, he, you know, he's he's there meeting the people. Menashe ben Israel, you know, whatever. And uh, this is very interesting. He was asked by a guy, probably one of these Spanish-Portuguese types, uh, who's bothered by the questions of Kabbalah and is it real or is it baloney? In other words, is the Zohar a forgery? Is all Kabbalah made up? A lot of stuff don't make no sense. Where they come from, just out of nowhere, all of a sudden it pops up in the 1200s. The kind of question a lot of people have afraid to ask, you know, that kind of thing. Now, mind you, he was a from guy. So the guy who asked him to write a book about it was saying, come out with a pro Kabbalah book. You get what I'm saying? Now, it's very weird, and I'll tell you what I mean. Our hero, Yosef Shlomo del Medigo, had a great great uncle back in the late 1400s. So I'm talking now 1620s, but now let's go back to this relative of his who lived, didn't live a long life, from let's say 1460 to 1495 approximately, late 15th century. It's about a, over a 130 years earlier, 120, 130 years earlier. This was Uncle Viz. From Crete, same family, I'll say again, Rabbi Elio Del Medigo. So our hero is Yosef Shlomo Del Medigo, and now I'm referring to his forebear, his great-great-uncle, which was El Yehud del Medigo. Right? And just like both cases, they grew up in Crete, which was under Venice. They had a Lumuni Kodesh and Lumuni education. So he's very well-learned in Shas. But also, he's very well-learned in philosophy. And this, and this is before the fall of science. So in other words, the medieval science was still around. 
is just beginning to begin to begin to be challenged. It's the Renaissance. And so I'm not going to give you a whole Western philosophy business. That'll lose you. So he also, at a certain point, moved from Crete to Padua. And there, um, he came just at a time when Italian intellectuals, the humanists, the Renaissance people, like Pico de la Mirandola, and people like that, are trying to explore the new frontiers of, of knowledge. And they themselves were not so familiar with the Arabic writings of the great medieval Arabic philosophers like uh, Ibn Rushd, you know, like Averroes and others. And this Jewish guy knew more than they did, and they knew he did. And so a lot of these big Christian intellectuals, who are Mavakshi Emmis in the Christian way, went to and employed this Jewish guy to teach them philosophy. <laughs> you see? Right? I'm not talking about like the Sforno, you know, who taught people of writ, or whatever, to teach them philosophy. Right? And to translate books like Jewish Mepharshim, who had written extensively in Spain on Aristotle, for example, or Plato, in uh, the early Middle Ages, to try to come and translate their stuff for these Italian guys. So it's a very weird thing. Now, I'll tell you again, he was a Talmud Chacham. He came with Smicha. I guess he had Smicha back home. And so this is the golden age of uh, the Padua Yeshiva. And so he gave a shear in the Yeshiva, but he also taught a course in the university. You don't find that too often in the 15th century. Okay? And, I mean, he was a, a, a professor. It's extremely unusual. Only because of his unusual knowledge. And the guy was in his 20s. I want to be clear of it. Because he died at 35. The guy was in his 20s. And he spends a very tempestuous 10 years in Italy. <clears throat> he represents, I'll use the term modern Orthodox, but I mean in a good way. I don't mean in a bad way here. Modern Orthodox in the sense of really combining Torah in the Italian way, in which you macabre the Mario, of course, it's subordinate to the Torah, but the Torah, and you try to be as enlightened in your practice of Judaism as possible. You look for time and mitzvahs, you know, that doesn't mean you don't do the mitzvah. The opposite. These guys are very medactic mitzvahs. And you learn and all the rest of it. When it comes to Agathas, you try to explain it in some logical way. Nothing wrong with any of that. Nothing wrong at all. His misfortune was, where he lived, came an invasion of Frummies. Uh, like you say, the whole town, Mitzharein. Let's see, a whole bunch of Satmers move in, something like that. That's the equivalent. What am I talking about? In his particular time, late 15th century, there was a persecution against the Jews in Ashkenaz in Germany. Many of the Jews fled south and came to northern Italy and settled in places like Padua or whatever. Padua actually was an Ashkenazi town. The Sephardim came later. As you know, the Sephardim didn't come till after 1492. I'm talking about before that. The new guys that come in are real frummies. They hold any Limurichol in contempt. And not only that, they're uh, hostile to anybody who has a, a secular degree. And especially with teachers in the college. And he, you know, uh, isn't coming from an Ashkenazi background whatsoever. You know, like he's, he doesn't believe in Tashach. They say that makes you a guy. You understand? Of course, he's coming from the point of view like this. Tashach, what do you think? You really doing a very throw to sin in the water? And even says somebody's Ashkenazim, they won't eat fish during the week. The, the Tashach, because the fish might have Daveris. You see? And for somebody like as an educated rationalists like him, Elio de Medigo, it's like very offensive, you get it? Like, what are we, a religion of superstition? Mashen King, the Ashkenazi Jews come and say, what are you, a guy? And it was just a bad chemistry. A bad chemistry. And um, 
eventually they ran him out of town. I mean, that's what happened. Now, along the way, he had students who were Talmudim of his. And one of them said, can you write, I won't say a Mernavuchim, because that's completely the wrong way of putting it, but something along those lines. Explaining Judaism, you know, in a logical way. And he tried. He wrote a book called Bechinas Ados, like Dal itself. No, it's like Dati and Lo Dati. Not Das. Bechinas Ados. Right? And um, in that, you know, tries to explain the Tari Mitzvahs and the, 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 how you work out in his way Torah versus Mata, you know, are the two truths. You know, intellectual questions that were interesting in the 15th, late 15th century. But he also, and, and he says this is the approach of the philosophers, this is the approach of the Talmudists. Now, I want to be clear. He says, you know, if the Torah says it, that's it. Because that's coming from Revelation. So science hasn't caught up with it yet. One day it will. You see what I'm saying? Is that approach? He wasn't a skeptic or something like that, but it, but he he writes in an unfrom fashion. Okay, in other words, from people didn't like to 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 talk that way in those days. Now today in America, it would, it would be a popular book. Okay, I mean it's written in old style, but I'm just saying. One of the chapters is about Kabbalah, and he says, "Who said all Kabbalah is even real?" So they say, "After this and the other, where did that come from?" I go look at the Rambam. The Rambam said Moshe Rabbeinu was there Har Sinai, you know. Uh, Shem Yechai was not there in Sinai, you know, that, that, that kind of approach. Like, where all of a sudden, the 1200s has popped up. And he says, I don't believe in the historicity of the Kabbalah. This is one of the famous books about this. Now, I repeat, it's a chapter in his book. It's not what the whole book is about, the Bechinus Ados. Uh, most of it is not a problem at all. But part of it was an attack on the Kabbalah. Oh, that was the wrong time in the wrong place. If he would have published it in Crete or something like that, you know, there probably would have got away with it. To be in Padua at his time, when Hashkunam Mitchared, when all these frumries are moving in, they look at it like it's treif. And the Rosh Hashiva in Padua of the Mari Mints, you know, he's, oh, my goodness, it's all against it. In addition to that, he got in trouble with the Goyim because since he was so smart, this is funny, the, there was a big machlokis in some philosophy thing about the existence of matter, or no, about the, I don't even remember what it is, something about the universality of the intellect, meaning some egghead business, between two groups of Italian philosophers, and they're arguing back and forth, and they can't settle it. The Galicia government says, like let this Jewish guy does it. He knows philosophy better than anybody, and he can tell which one is right. Isn't that amazing? I repeat, the guy was in his 20s, late, or, uh, around close to 30 years old. It's extraordinary. And he heard both sides of the philosophical debate, and he passed in, in, team, in favor of Team A. As a result, Team B wanted to kill him, and he had to run away from Italy. So he left, uh, you know what I mean, uh, with the Jews angry at him and the guy angry at him. Uh, this Eliodo made it go. He went back to Crete. And there, a couple years later, he had an operation. I think there was a growth on his cheek or something like that. This is what the Yashar Kanye said. And listen to this. It involved a certain surgery. And one of the guys didn't like him put a poison in the in the medicine that they applied to the chick and it killed him. You know, it's a crazy story. So nevertheless, the book was out there. I don't think it was published, but it used to circulate in manuscript. It wasn't published till later. I, I mean it'll be published now. Now you have the great great grandson or grand nephew who is not who's like the great uncle, but is not. The great uncle held the Kabbalah was a bunch of bull. The nephew does not hold that way. I want to be very clear about that. 
the nephew studied with Talmud Arizal. You hear what I'm saying? On the other hand, he certainly appreciates the Torah-Mada side of things. To be a Makobo doesn't mean in favor of superstition. It's a very important distinction I'm making over here. You understand? Uh, and it's just what it was. So he, so a guy asked him, as a pro couple move, can you write a book refuting your uncle's chapter in that book against the Kabbalah? Because I know you're of a different mind. And he did do it. And that safer is called Matzer Flechachma. So it's very weird. It's a, and I have a beautiful model. I mean, a copy here, an updated copy. Is there, and it's the old classic style of arguing. And he's a very good writer in Hebrew. And so basically what you have is like this. He says, my um, grandfather, uncle, I think it was a great uncle, wrote this and this line against the Kabbalah. And then he has pages and pages and pages to slug it out. You see? And then another line. He said this in his book, Bechinus Adas, meaning the chapter against Kabbalah in the book, Bechinus Adas. And here I'm going to have page and page slug it up, bringing all kinds of, you know, arguments and sources against it. And that's how the, ironically, that's how the Bechinus Adas got published. You, you get what I'm saying? You know, by the nephew, our hero, publishing refutation, people say, oh, I never heard this kasha in the first place. And uh, it became a very controversial work. Um, because at one point, He's giving a whole attack on the philosophers. I repeat, an attack against the philosophers. Now, the public doesn't understand what I'm about to say, or what he was about to say. He was attacking the medieval philosophers. And he was trying to point out the flaws in their reasoning. But he says in, in, in the, most, the most famous line of his book, is what I'm about to read you, and that became the most controversial part of it, even though it really shouldn't be the most important part of the book, but as I said before, folk memory has its own way. And in this, uh, in the Sefer, um, which was quoted later on by all the Gedolim and this, that, and the other, you know, they like this part, they didn't like this part, it's always been part of the, the discourse. So he says over here in one of the chapters, chapter 17, he says, um, <clears throat> What I'm writing now is against the philosophers. I repeat, the medieval philosophers. And I'm doing this to defend Kabbalah against philosophy. Because this was what I was engaged to do by one of these rich guys, who is now a Makobol, is pro-Kabbalah. Now he's obviously talking about one of the Portuguese Murano Jews who recently was a guy and now became Jewish again, and for some reason is Kabbalah, and he wants to hear a book that will logically defend the Kabbalah. Um, so since he asked me to do it, so I undertook to do this, meaning like an attorney. If you pay me, I can, uh, uh, I'll defend Reuben against Shimon. If you pay me, I can defend Shimon against Reuben. Um, since we, the two of us have, you know, um, a very good friendship, I undertook to write this book, and I turned away from my other studies, to do him a favor. But I want you to know, if he changes his mind tomorrow, and switches from team pro-Kabola to team anti-Kabola, because after all, as I said, he's probably a Portuguese Jew who done the right hand from left, and he'll switch to team philosophy, and he'll ask me, Go and write a, 
a defense of the philosophers, I'll do it. I'll defend the philosophical point of view. Oh my goodness. This line was taken by everybody ever since to say the guy was a phony, a two uh, dollar bill. You know, he's just writing for whatever he said. And um, all the big Mukubolim, while they use his stuff to a degree, but they say, you know, he, he you can't trust him. Uh, he's just a mercenary. Uh, is a cynic. He wrote this line in to, to undermine all of his pro-Kabbal arguments. You understand? And he said himself, I'm just writing this because the guy's paying me. If, if if tomorrow I can switch and, and write the other way around. I don't agree. I think he was a big intellectual, as you see. And he understood there are arguments pro-Kabbal, arguments against Kabbal. And there are. You get it? There are arguments this side, arguments this side. Doesn't mean one's... From the arguments, you don't necessarily come up with who's right and who's wrong. But if you want to make... And arguments, and I'm, I'm, I mean lawyer arguments, intellectual arguments. I don't mean to very rebos, you know. Uh, it could be done. And he knew a heck of a lot, and he knew all the arguments pro couple all against Kabbalah. But he himself was a Kabbalah, meaning he buys into it. Oh, my Lord. Uh, this is quoted so many times. Uh, uh, later on, um, a contemporary of his, Leona Modena, uh, wrote a whole book, Ari Nohem, against Kabbalah, saying the same thing that the Bechinus Ados does. But the Bechinus Ados from the uncle is short, and the Ari Nohem is long, much more elaborate. And uh, it wasn't published, but it was around. You know, people make copies of it. Like we say today, it's on the internet, you know. And uh, uh, this generated counterattacks from the Kabbalah for the next couple hundred years. So, uh, so again, the Ari Noahim is the anti-Kabbalah book from Leo de Manna, and then uh, the Shamramunim from Irgas, the Vikuach uh, Menchokah Mekobo from the Ramchal, the Kadma Sefer Azor from the Radal in the 1800s, and uh, the guy I spoke about long ago, Rabbi Yitzhak cover in Lithuania, the Mug of they all quote, I know Yitzhak covers quotes him, these are guys are pro-Kabbalah, and against the critics of Kabbalah, but he says, I'm quoting him, but I have tinnitus on him because he's a two bit phony. You understand? Masha Havi, Midivri, Yosef Shlomo, Mikandia, Bechorah Yosef, He said, Ha'emesim Rav Yashar in this guy. Meaning, he intellectually has a point. There are arguments in me for and back. But nevertheless, Parilu Rabbi Migdolim Vesino. But many people have tinnitus on him for this. Who nechshad bekami inyanim? Belohi kazos miishka shakamo shakasa beferish kam mekomas shlogila emes amuskam b'tayat al sefer. And it's clear that he doesn't give a full throated acceptance of the couple, and that is a turnoff. And uh, this, uh, when, when the reform movement started in the Askal in the eighteen hundreds, they all raised him to the level of a saint. So you see, the guy didn't believe in all this religious stuff; he just did it for money, and they made him into a proto reform Jew, which was a lie. Okay? Which was a lie. Uh, now, in addition to that, that's the Sefer Masiv Chochma. So, uh, as I said, I have a nice, beautiful, clean edition published about 15 years ago, something like that. You're never going to see it in America, at least as far as I know. Um, but it's real. And I picked it up. I couldn't believe it. You know, somebody's publishing this. Uh, and it's called the, 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 uh, what you call it? It's called the uh, Matzer of Lechachma. It was originally published 
1630 uh, with the title Talumas Chachma, right? In which, and this is very common of the early modern printing, they published like four or five books in one thing. Uh, they had the Bechinas Ados from the uncle, which in my volume, they skipped at because you can get it just by reading through the Matzah Vachachma you see at the top. My uncle said this, and here's the Katatina. Uh Plus, it's a from Yerushalayim, you know, I guess they didn't want to push it too far. Uh, they have the Magrits Chachma. They also included in there the famous letters of Rabbi Shlomo Shlumiel, like Shlumiel ben Sirishadai. He's the guy who first wrote about the Arizal. Okay? So this is in 1630. This is uh, already a classic by then. They have something from the... This is all in the book published in 1630. They also have something, one of the Mamaris from the Maramipana, you know, that's the Mamaris. You also have, um, anyway, all this Kabbalistic stuff, right? Plus some other things like that. Uh, that's the original edition, okay? Uh, in the original edition. And it also includes something weird. And that's called Novelos Chachma, which is in this book that I have. Novelos Chachma is really weird. Our hero had Talmudim who followed him around. They were fans of his. And they asked him Kabbalah questions, Halacha questions, things like that. And um, he had writings which he wasn't publishing because he himself, you know, if you have a manuscript or, or, or like today, you have a file on your computer, it doesn't mean you hold from, it could be early and speculative. And he had ideas about Kabbalah that he wrote when he was young and for some reason still kept in Ksavim. And this guy stole it. His student stole it. And he, he borrowed some. He stole it. And without the teacher's permission, he published it. And that's called Novelis Chachma. Um, and the teacher, our, uh, our hero, was very angry about it. He said, Vatigna Vesilavavi, you know, who gave you the right to do so? And uh, therefore, other Mukabom say he made mistakes, the, the, the Ramaz, you know. And it could very well be. I mean, I don't know enough about it. Uh, and so these are two very controversial books of yesteryear. And um, eventually he wouldn't make Aliyah. He, he was on his way to, uh, which is interesting because if, he, if, he's, if he's at the age of 60, he wants to make Aliyah, it's like the Shlob, but in a different context. I'm asking you the following question. Um, he's going in his older age to Eretz Yisrael. You ain't going to find no philosophers there. You're not going to find any mathematicians there. He's going to Eretz Yisrael to perfect himself in Kabbalah. So you see, as life went on, he moved more and more into, he saw the sciences and where it's at, but the Kabbalah is, which is the opposite of the way that he's portrayed. You know, hold, this, hold on for a second. All right, let me finish. Uh, his, so he, he wants to go to Eretz Yisrael. Um, he died on the way. He died in Prague, actually, which was on his way from uh, wherever he was. You know, he went to Frankfurt for a while. By the way, I didn't say it. After Amsterdam, he ended up in Frankfurt. In Frankfurt, he was an MD for the community. The Christians all had rules that you can't have Jewish doctors. The Jewish doctors are stupid. They're not educated. But when they saw him, they said, uh, okay, that's different, <laughs> you know? And uh, they, they had to eat their words because he was a renowned physician and a very moral type of guy, you know? So no, no times with him. Uh, so he ended up in Frankfurt. But then anyway, on the way to Israel, he stopped in Prague and he died there. So it's weird if you go, and I had a group that we went to uh, the cemetery in Prague. I didn't go inside, I'm a coin, but they did, and they said, I saw the Nadevi Hood, I saw the Morale, I saw this guy, that guy. What's this Yashar candy? You know, what is that all about? And, you know, I said it's too long to explain, because you see now, I gave you the short version now. I can't stand in front of a outside a cemetery and give an hour-long talk about the Yashar Mekandia, 
when you have all these other famous and great people over there. Uh, so to make a long story short, if you're interested in the original edition, what they call the Talumas Chachma, the Novelist Chachma, which is the original, very controversial work that I just described, with the Yashar Mikandia stuff in it, plus other stuff as well. Um, and if money's no object, you'll take a look at the uh, uh, the catalog, it's item 101, and you'll come across a golden treasure from yesteryear that, uh, as I said before, the Yodi Safer know about, the Cognoscenti know about, the Jewish historians who know all the uh, gossip of yesteryear, the, they're aware of the Yashar Mikandia. Most other people never heard of them. Um, and it was up to the regular Mugabom. They said, oh, you shouldn't even have nothing to do with him. But he is, I'll tell you again, he's one of the uh, Gedoli Achronim, not in the classic sense at all, as I just described, uh, because he thought outside the box. Now, his conclusions were from, but he thought outside the box, and his whole educational gang wasn't one you typically associate with the, with the 17th century. But you know something? Like everybody else, if he wanted to stay from, and he did want to stay from, little by little he ended up moving to the right in the course of his life. So maybe he was disillusioned with the way science and philosophy was going. It's, it's, it's an open-ended question. And uh, if I had to give the, a talk at the university, you'd have to give a lot more thought to it than I'm doing now because he's, he's, he's intellectually a very unusual and uh, interesting person. Um, but I just mention this because if I said Master of the don't mean nothing to you, now I hope it'll mean something to you. And those who are interested in a slice of this piece of history is published in Basel in 1630 or so. Uh, you'll take a look at the catalog. Anyway, with that, once again, I want to thank Mishpah Stefanski and, uh, uh, for sponsoring this, and uh, I'll see you later. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.